Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the CardioNerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, Tommy and Rick get together with Dr. Aaron Mikos, one of my favorite mentors and Associate Professor of Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology for an amazing discussion about the effects of DHA and EPA on triglycerides and why DHA and EPA combinations may have exhibited limited effects in trials. Get ready for a very important and nuanced discussion. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. And with that, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, for joining us today in the second episode on triglycerides as we continue our series on lipids. My name is Rick Ferraro, and I'm excited, as always, to be joined by my former co-resident at the Johns Hopkins Osler Medical Program and current Cleveland Clinic Cardiology Fellow, Tommy Das. Thanks, Rick. Really excited to continue this tour through lipidology. We've got a great show lined up today. We're going to be focusing on specific DHA and EPA combination pills and the key studies surrounding these drugs. This has proven to be a really big turning point in terms of our understanding and treatment of triglycerides. Absolutely agree, Tommy. I could not be more honored to introduce our expert guest and discussant today, Dr. Aaron Mikos from the Johns Hopkins Hospital Department of Cardiology. Dr. Mikos is the Associate Director of Preventative Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins Chicaroni Center for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. She has co-authored over 400 manuscripts and is a true leader in the space of women's health and preventative cardiology. Dr. Mikos, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm a huge cardio nerds fan, and I'm a nerd myself. And I really admire what you all have done to transform the medical education space, focusing here on cardiovascular disease. But really what I'm most impressed with is your dedicated attention to diversity and inclusion on your program, the democratization and equalization of voices, particularly for those early in career like yourselves, residents and cardiology fellows. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mikos, for those really kind words. And you know, we're inspired by you so much every day, but both your leadership in the field and also your dedication to mentorship. And especially when you speak about diversity and inclusion in the mission of cardio nerds, we couldn't think of someone who echoes that more. And we're going to get started today with a question we actually ask everyone here on our series, and that's, how did you get interested in cardiovascular prevention and lipidology? Well, what I love about being a preventive cardiologist is that the best intervention for cardiovascular disease is prevention. I mean, the inner heart study showed us that nine modifiable risk factors predict 90% of acute myocardial infarction. So we think that most of cardiovascular disease can be prevented. 
And as for lipids in particular, I mean, I don't know how anyone can't be excited about lipids. I mean, maybe back during my cardiology fellowship a long time ago, I thought we had statins and we were done with lipids and that was it. And then the door has just been blown wide open and there's all these really new and exciting advances in lipid therapy, like our PCSK9 antibodies, benfidoic acid and clizerin, and the ones still undergoing study like pelicarsin, which is the ASO for lipoprotein little a, and inhibitors for APOC3 and ANG-PTL3. We're here today to talk about omega-3s, but you know, there's even a fibrate trial, the prominent trial of pembrofibrate ongoing. So we haven't even given up completely on fibrates yet. So the lipid field is a very exciting place to be. Really amazing, Dr. Mikos. And I'll say that you're one of the people that, that got me interested in cardiovascular prevention and, and really your depth of knowledge. And even just, even just this introductory sentence there is, is it's going to be a great discussion tonight, I can tell. And so just to get us started with some context, in our first episode on triglycerides in this series, we discussed triglycerides and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD risk. Today, we're going to shift focus a bit and talk about treatment, specifically DHA, or doxahexanoic acid, and EPA, or icosapentanoic acid, combinations. Tommy, any chance you could take us through these a little bit to get started? Absolutely, Rick. And I also thank you for pronouncing the full names when leaving me for the abbreviations. I'm very appreciative of that for sure. <laughs> so DHA and EPA are N3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, also known as omega-3 fatty acids. They've been of some interest for over two decades, given observations of high dietary omega-3 fatty acid intake and reduced cardiovascular events. Now, episode three of our series is going to focus on the mechanism of action omega-3 fatty acids, and EPA specifically. But for now, it's important to know the trials that actually clarified whether or not there was a cardiovascular benefit with people on omega-3 fatty acids. That's exactly right, Tommy. And one of the big trials that kicked a lot of this off was the Gissi Prevenzioni trial, which was published in The Lancet way back in 1999. In this trial, the authors evaluated the effect of omega-3 supplementation in the form of a combination pill of DHA and EPA on cardiovascular events and death. They studied vitamin E as well, but we'll leave that out of this conversation for now, other than to say there was no cardiovascular effect from vitamin E. And the findings of this trial were pretty striking. Over the course of 3.5 years follow-up, participants treated with DHA-EPA combination experienced a significant reduction in death, non-fatal MI, and stroke. Dr. Mikos, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of these findings and, and what they meant and still mean for cardiovascular prevention? Sure. But before I jump into discussing Jesse Provencioni, I have to give a little background on triglycerides for context. I know it's been covered in other programs, but since you have me here, I just have to give you my key takeaway points before we talk about the specific trials. So first of all, in epidemiology studies, I just wanted to emphasize that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events increase across a range of triglyceride levels that begin between 50 and 200. So even within the normal-ish range, that as levels start to go up, ASCVD risk starts to go up. So lower seems to be better for triglycerides like it is with LDL. And that elevations in triglycerides demonstrate increased risks for ASCVD beyond um, monotherapy with statins. And that triglycerides and their remnants, the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins are atherogenic. So the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins is what we're kind of estimating by using serum triglyceride levels, and that we think these are atherogenic, and that there's a genetic evidence for triglyceride-rich lipoproteins that suggests that these are in the causal pathway of ASCVD. 
And unfortunately, elevated triglyceride levels are really pervasive in the United States. You know, over one-fourth of the U.S. adults have uh, elevated triglycerides above 150, including nearly one out of three individuals who are taking statin therapy have suboptimal triglyceride levels. And so that we're estimating, you know, more than 3 million ASCVD events over the next decade in those with triglycerides above 150, including over a million events on people who are already taking statins. So this is why it's so important. And, you know, omega-3s may exert some of their protective effect on atherothrombosis by blocking some of these pro-inflammatory and deleterious effects of triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. And this really all became, you know, of interest in omega-3s from observing the low rates of coronary heart disease that we see in like the Eskimo population that was exposed to diets that's really rich in fish. And we think the benefits, as you're going to talk about in other programs, are related to like their triglyceride lowering, but also their memorization, stabilization, their antithrombotic, anti-inflammatory, and antiarrhythmic properties. All right, so you asked me about just C. preventioni. So as you mentioned, this was published in The Lancet in 1999. So we're talking about 22 years ago. The study was actually conducted between 1993 and 1995. And they investigated, you know, one gram of a combination of polyunsaturated fatty acids, EPA and DHA, in a ratio, an average of one to two. And it was a multicenter open-label design. So it was open-label. And it had over 11,000 patients who had a recent myocardial infarction within the past three months. And, you know, like most of these secondary prevention trials, 85% were men. And as you mentioned, it was a factorial design that also had a vitamin E arm. But really, notably, intention-to-treat analysis had actually shown a 10% reduction in the primary outcome of death, non-fatal MI, and stroke. And secondary analysis suggested a 17% reduction in cardiovascular death. And really, you only saw a small decrease in triglyceride concentration, about 3% in the study. So that wasn't a big change and didn't really explain this benefit that was seen. But I think that we really need to consider this with a number of big caveats. Again, this was 1999. So first of all, this was a population that all had recent MI and may not apply to other populations. This was conducted in you know, Italy on a you know background of a high Mediterranean-style diet. And really, at this time, only 5% of the trial population was on cholesterol-lowering medications at baseline. Only 45%, less than half, were on cholesterol-lowering medication at study end at 42 months. And, you know, baseline lipids show that the LDL was 138, so that's pretty high for patients with coronary disease, and the triglyceride levels were 162 on average, so they had elevated triglyceride levels on average. So again, patients were largely not in statins, and so it was hardly representative of contemporary guideline-directed medical therapy. And also want to mention back in that time, I mean, 42% of patients in the EPA DHR were current smokers. I mean, that's a lot. 42% were smokers, and that's not reflective of current practice either. And not that many patients had diabetes, and you know, only 15% had an elevated BMI above 30. So um, you know, populations look very different today. But I want to mention also that a little bit later, there was the GISI heart failure trial, also looking at omega-3 supplementation in patients with chronic heart failure, mostly HEFREF patients. This was published a little bit more recent in Lancet 2008, but again, still, you know, more than a decade ago. And that had about 7,000 patients in the trial with uh, heart failure, but was only 22% taking uh, a statin. But they did see also a benefit in this trial as well for the omega-3 fatty acids. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Mikos, for those explanations. And a quick follow-up question for the audience. 
And and Jesse uh, HF, th- those patients also got the same DHA EPA combo pill. Yes. Gotcha. So the same combination. And you know, I think that's interesting because if you just look at the Jesse trials, you would think that you know DHA EPA this is going to change how we approach cardiovascular disease and risk reduction. And it's interesting because. Coming after that, we see a string of trials with really different outcomes. Um, we have the Alpha Omega trial in 2010, Origin in 2012, Ascend in 2018, Vital 2019. All of them are trials of DHA EPA combos versus placebo. And the main thing that they all have in common is that they don't have a significant difference in cardiovascular events when they compare the trial arm to the placebo arm. You know, there's a lot of trials I mentioned there, but the the trials that have been conducted on the more standard background of therapy of statins, lower smoking rates. Dr. Mikos, what do those trials tell us about the evolving picture of omega-3 supplementation? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the JISI trials were not really conducted on current guideline-directed medical therapy. And since that time, there's been you know multiple large studies that examine the benefits of mixtures of EPA and DHA with more contemporary background therapy, including statin therapy. And as you mentioned, these have failed to show any significant reduction in cardiovascular endpoints, at least for the primary endpoints. And these include Ascend, Vital, Strength, and Omemi. I will mention that baseline triglyceride levels were not an inclusion criteria for either Jesse, Prevencioni, Ascend, Vital, or Omemi. So really, you know, the most substantial evidence that we have has emerged from the Reduce It trial, which I think you're going to talk about in an upcoming program where we saw an overall 25% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events and a 20% relative reduction in the pre-specified endpoint of cardiovascular death. But, you know, two studies in 2020, Strength and Omemi showed you know, no results for this combined therapy. So we'll, we'll talk about some of the differences of, of strength, I think, here in a minute. You know, I think the big takeaway is that EPA and DHA differ in their biological effects related to membrane structure and lipid metabolism. And this is why, at least the hypothesis that combining DHA with EPA might partially offset the beneficial effects that we see with EPA alone, you know, and reduce it, they used a a pure, highly purified form of EPA at four grams a day. Uh, So before we go into strength, I just want to mention the dietary supplements because a lot of patients take these. And again, you know, prior to reduce it, multiple meta-analyses had failed to show, you know, any cardiovascular benefit for these omega-3s, which were largely, you know, the one gram a day of EPA-DHA combination. So dietary supplements, I first, uh, I think sometimes people uh, mistakenly call them over-the-counter omega-3s, but they're actually no over-the-counter omega-3. So when you call something an over-the-counter medication, that would be something that is FDA regulated, but just not prescription. But we don't have any over-the-counter omega-3s. What we have is dietary supplements. So these are not regulated in the same way. They have minimal FDA oversight. They're regulated kind of under the same umbrella as food rather than medications. And dietary supplements are not supposed to be recommended to treat any kind of disease, just to supplement diet. But, you know, a lot of companies and, you know, they make all these claims for these benefits for heart and brain and vision and inflammation and cognitive function and everything else uh, with really little data to support that. But, you know, about 8% of the U.S. adults, 19 million individuals actually take dietary supplements of fish oil, 
And there's a lot of problems with this, again, because it's not regulated. Some studies have suggested up to um, 36% of the content may actually be saturated fat and not the healthier polyunsaturated fats, that often the, the omega-3 fatty acid content on the, on the labels of these dietary supplements are often overstated. A lot of these dietary supplements can have oxidized omega-3 fatty acid uh, content can be pretty high. And even those that meet industry standards have more oxidation of the omega-3 fatty acids than you would find in prescription medications. And there's a contamination risk with pesticides and PCBs. Uh, and it's really difficult to achieve the EPA and DHA doses and similar to the prescription medications. So my definite big takeaway is I do not recommend dietary supplements uh, of omega-3s for, for any patients. Dr. Miko, thank you for bringing up that incredibly important point about these dietary supplements. And I do want to, while we're on the topic of the supplements, just get your approach. You know, a lot of patients are taking these supplements thinking that it's a benefit to them. And, you know, they're, they're motivated to reduce their cardiovascular risk. That's why they're taking them. So I'm curious, when you have a patient in your clinic who is on one of these supplements, how do you, how do you approach that? How do you address that with the patient in terms of counseling them and trying to get them on a medication that is beneficial and get them off something that may actually have harm, as you mentioned? Yeah, so it can be challenging to talk to patients about supplement use. I think most patients take supplements really with good intentions. They are motivated about health and they want to take supplements because they want to try to improve their health. Uh, and often, you know, they're sort of misled to believe that the, the supplements have more benefit from their health than really the data shows. But I try to capitalize on that motivation by really emphasizing the benefits of a healthy lifestyle that, you know, they, they want to do something natural. Well, there's nothing, you know, more natural than, you know, eating a, a diet rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and having a, a moderate intake of, of fish at least twice a week that they can, if they want something natural, there's nothing more natural than getting it through food sources and also emphasizing the importance of benefit of physical activity and, and all which is in their control. So, you know, that's what I try to emphasize. And then I try to talk about pill burden and and really try to, you know, minimize the number of pills that they're taking by trying to streamline that to pharmacotherapy that actually has proven cardiovascular risk reduction. Dr. Migos, that's incredibly helpful. And, you know, I just want to echo what Tommy said that it's hearing that from from someone who's really a master at this, a master clinician, and and introducing that topic of dietary supplementation and how important that is to discuss with patients, particularly with 8% of the population taking some sort of supplementation, as you said, is incredibly powerful and, and certainly something that I'll bring into my practice. You know, you had brought up strength a little bit, and a lot has been discussed about strength in the media and elsewhere. But overall, it was a largely negative study for DHA-EPA combination, similar to prior trials discussed by Tommy above. This contrasts significantly with Reduce It, which we've covered in other episodes and, and will be covering again, as you mentioned. But how do you think the findings in strength add to our understanding here of DHA EPA? Okay, great. So just briefly to review, strength enrolled sort of a similar population to Reduce It with some exceptions, but these were over 13,000 patients 
who had high triglyceride levels and low HDL, who were treated with background statin therapy and at high risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes. And uh, as you mentioned, the trial was halted for futility when a little over 1,300 patients had reached a primary endpoint and they had done an interim analysis. And there was absolutely no signal for benefit. It was as null as null can get with the, you know, the, the Kaplan-Meier curve lines, you know, completely over, overlapping in the hazard ratio right around one. So this really contrasted in comparison to the, you know, mark 25% risk of reduction of major adverse cardiovascular events that we see in reduce it. So, you know, really when this has come up, I think there's really five, you know, main points of discussion. I mean, really the first major point is that these are two completely different therapies. You have this ethyl ester formulation of EPA, highly purified, you know, pure EPA versus this carboxylic acid formulation of the EPA DHA mixture. And, you know, not all omega-3s are the same. And just because you have a negative trial of one completely different formulation that doesn't necessarily negate the benefits of another different type of EPA with a different formulation, it may be that this carboxylic acid formulation just simply doesn't work. And again, uh, EPA and DHA, we think, have different biological properties. There's differences in the membrane stabilization of fluidity. DHA integrates into membranes in a much more disorganized fashion than EPA. EPA leads to more uh, stable membranes, where DHA leads to more fluid membranes. There's different resolvents engaged. The activity on oxidized LDL is different. And there's different effects on anti-inflammatory biomarkers, such as CRP. And there's different effects in, in the lipids. You know, DHA can have a, a modest increase in LDL cholesterol. So my first point is that they're completely different therapies, so you really can't compare them, and a negative trial of one doesn't negate a positive trial of the other. The second thing which I think is really important is the lower blood levels of EPA achieved in strength. So you know, I think we saw from Reduce It, analyses presented from Reduce It, this dose-response relationship of achieved serum EPA levels you know, the higher the level of serum EPA, the greater cardiovascular risk reduction benefit that we see, particularly when levels get above 100 micrograms per milliliter. So in we reduce it, you know, in the Western populations where it was kind of conducted, the baseline levels of EPA are were quite low, you know, in around 23. But with this high dose of, of, of EPA, four grams a day, the median serum EPA levels increased to 144 um, micrograms per milliliter at one year treatment. So that's quite high. Whereas in strength, the, you know, the plasma EPA level, again, started out very low, similar to reduce it, started out around 21, but only increased to around 90 uh, micrograms per milliliter in the EPA DHA arm at one year. And so I just want to contrast that the JELUS trial, which was the other major trial that showed benefit of EPA at a, a moderate dose of 1.8 grams a day, but it was an open-label trial conducted in Japan. And because it was in Japan, the, the baseline uh, plasma levels of EPA and JELUS were 97 and then they, with 1.8 grams of, of EPA, it increased to 170 in jealous. So in other words, the baseline EPA levels in jealous were higher than the median achieved levels of EPA in strength. So I, I just think, you know, strength didn't, you know, just didn't get to the same levels of EPA is another thing that 
could explain the differences. You know, the, the third point is that there is some differences in the type of patients that were in the two trials. A slightly higher percentage of patients with established cardiovascular disease was in reduce it. So 71% was secondary prevention, where in strength, it was only 56%. Reduce it was slightly longer follow-up, about 4.9 years. Um, strength was stopped early for fertility at, at 3.5 years. And then a lot of noise has been around the differences in the comparator arms, the placebo comparators of the two trials. Reduce it used mineral oil, strength used corn oil. You know, I, I think that this has been blown up a bit and certainly the mineral oil comparator in Reduce It, I don't think can explain away the whole mark 25% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. I mean, maybe mineral oil is not completely inert, you know, but we're talking about, you know, very small amounts, two cc's of mineral oil uh, and corn oil may not be inert either. But really, this has been extensively reviewed. And, you know, even in post hoc analysis, the beneficial effects of icosapet ethylene reduce it was not related to whether patients in the placebo arm had an increase or a decrease or change in their LDL. Similarly, you know, there was also an increase in, in CRP in the placebo arm and reduce it. And again, the benefits of icosapet ethyl wasn't related to that change in CRP either. And there was a review that really couldn't find any consistent pattern in changes of lipid levels or inflammatory markers in patients with mineral oil. And I think probably one of the most evidence comes from the comparing the placebo arms of some CTA trials. So evaporate was a CTA trial that uh, compared icosapent ethyl with mineral oil. And so if you looked at the mineral oil placebo arm from evaporate and you compared it with another CTA arm of a historical cohort of patients in this, this garlic trial where the placebo got a cellulose-based placebo. There was no difference in plaque progression in these two comparators across trials between patients getting mineral oil and patients getting this cellulose-based placebo, meaning that, that, that mineral oil wasn't suddenly causing accelerated plaque progression that could explain away you know, all the benefits of icosapent ethyl. And there was another CTA arm called the HEARTS trial, which investigated mixed EPA plus DHA on, on plaque. And this really failed to show a significant difference in change from baseline from non-calcified plaque. So we didn't see any change in plaque with the combined EPA DHA arm in this HEARTS trial. Whereas, of course, in evaporate, uh, we did see a benefit with plaque uh, regression with icosapent ethyl. Dr. Mikos, thank you for that just comprehensive and elegant breakdown of the data. This has become such a hot topic for so many people. And having this sense of not just these two studies, but how they're taken in context with all the studies before them and things that are on the horizon is so, so helpful. You know, one thing you did bring up EPA levels and one thing that came up after Strength was published was a secondary analysis where they looked at different tertiles of patients in strength. And they actually, I think the, the highest tertile of EPA levels, there still was no cardiovascular benefit for those patients. So just curious, any thoughts with that particular secondary analysis? Those patients still did get DHA as well, but any other thoughts with that? Yeah, I mean, I still think, you know, overall, you know, the, the overall trial, the average levels didn't get up, you know, that high. And, you know, I mentioned there's, you know, multiple reasons that explain the differences between the trials, not just the blood levels, uh, including the fact that these are two completely different formulations and two different types of omega-3s and have different biological effects. 
No, that's great. I think that point you make there in terms of these being two just completely different formulations is so key. And I think we've now laid out a really strong evidence-based argument that in the, you know, based on the current data with the current patient populations that EPA DHA combo pills are not beneficial with regards to cardiovascular disease prevention. And, you know, that kind of raises the next question. You brought this up as well is whether there are is some of that lack of benefit driven by adverse effects from DHA? You know, are D, is DHA potentially not only not beneficial, but is it potentially toxic? And you mentioned things about CRP levels changing. And I'm just curious, Dr. Mikos, what are your thoughts on this potential toxicity from DHA? And if that's part of what's hampering this DHA-EPA combination? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure that DHA is toxic per se. It just may, you know, offset or hamper some of the benefit from EPA. So as I mentioned earlier, EPA can lower triglycerides without raising LDL cholesterol levels, where DHA has been shown to modestly increase LDL levels uh, in patients who have elevated triglyceride levels. You know, a high intake of omega-3 fatty acids can increase the production of EPA, you know, which is competing through arachidonic acid through the COX pathways. And this can help mitigate some of these pro-inflammatory cytokines and generate mediators that improve vasodilatation and decrease inflammation. So I do think they have different mechanisms. We know that EPA and DHA cellular interactions also vary based on their hydrocarbon length and their number of double bonds. They're just, you know, different formulations. But that being said, you know, there is some data. So the overall primary outcomes of those trials of the combined DHA, EPA were negative. But if you look at subgroups of, of just secondary analyses of, for outcomes of, of MI and CHD events, you do see some trend for benefit. There's been a couple of meta-analyses. Uh, Dr. Joanne Manson um, had conducted a meta-analysis looking at, you know, uh, marine omega-3 supplementation. And if you look at the outcomes for MI, CHD deaths, total CHD, even after exclusion from reduce it, you know, there, there did seem to be a benefit overall. And I've heard her speak and she, she thinks that there's really no benefit of omega-3s for stroke and that she said that if she could do a uh, vital overgan, maybe she would have the primary outcome powered for CHD rather than total CVD. So the primary outcome was overall null, but there was a benefit for the, the MI secondary outcome. Of course, you know, we always need to consider uh, secondary outcomes with a, a grain of caution because trials are powered for the, the primary outcome. Now, we recently also published a meta-analysis in e-clinical medicine, which is one of the Lancet journals. The first author was Dr. Safi Khan. Dr. Bott was the senior author. And this was, again, a meta-analysis of, of 38 different omega-3 trials, you know, four compared EPA versus control, and 34 compared EPA plus DHA. And so when, when taken all together, when you look at the outcome of non-fatal MI, we did see some benefit for both, but the benefit was much greater for EPA. So the reduction in non-fatal MI in this meta-analysis was 28% reduction, which was significant, where with combined EPA-DHA, it was an 8% reduction in MI. So it was still significant, but much more modest. However, our meta-analysis showed that while we did see a reduction in uh, MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events with EPA monotherapy in the range of, you know, 22%, EPA and DHA combination didn't reduce MACE. 
So, you know, our meta-analysis suggests that there's much more greater reductions in cardiovascular outcomes with EPA monotherapy than those with EPA DHA. So not that EPA DHA is, is toxic, but the benefits are, are much greater with EPA monotherapy. And I really think these findings are plausible in the context of what I laid out as distinct biological properties that are different between EPA and DHA. Thank you, Dr. Mikos. That's really helpful to our understanding and and a lot of points to think about there. We were wondering, based on all that we've discussed today and, and some of the points you just made, what place do you think there is, if any, for DHA EPA combination pills and the modern armamentarium of cardiovascular prevention or or really medicine broadly? Well, first I want to mention that fatty oil fish is an excellent source of both DHA and EPA, which are these two key types of omega-3 fatty acids that we're discussing. So I still encourage individuals in the background of a healthy diet, if they do uh, intake seafood, to try to aim to have at least two servings of fish per week. So don't forget about dietary intake from food sources. As I mentioned before, I really discourage patients from taking dietary supplements of omega-3s. And then in terms of the prescription, really, I, I, I don't really see much of a role for DHA EPA. I mean, you really want to use what works. I mean, if I have a patient with very elevated triglycerides, we do know that prescription grade DHA EPA does lower triglycerides and it's FDA approved, you know, for triglyceride lowering. So that's still an option there. But I want to do more than lower triglycerides. I want to lower cardiovascular risk. I mean, I want to use a medication that has cardiovascular prevention, cardiovascular risk reduction. And so for me, I'm going to use what we have, what works from the trial data. So I'm going to go with the prescription EPA, uh, icosapent ethyl, which has, you know, been now endorsed by multiple societies in, into their professional guidelines. Dr. Mikos, thank you so much for that. It's a great take-home message. And I just want to thank you again for this just great discussion and for lending your time here to chat with us about this topic and review the data and review how it's changing our practice. It's really, really impactful. I just want to leave us with a, you know, a cardiac classic in terms of our question. What is it that makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? Oh, well, I'm a lifestyle enthusiast. So I think the most important way to prevent cardiovascular disease is to follow a healthy lifestyle throughout the lifespan. So I really like the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7 framework. It's also known as the Cardiovascular Health Score because this really focuses on seven health and behavioral factors that are all modifiable and really has shifted our focus from, you know, being focused on disease to promotion of wellness and cardiovascular health. And to me, this is a a message of empowerment. Thank you so much for that message and that holistic approach for taking care of your patients. It's inspiring for all of the mentees you've had at Hopkins and across the country who've worked with you. It's really so impactful. I just want to thank uh, Dr. Mikos again for your being here today. I hope you guys all stay tuned. We're going to have a, some more episodes on triglycerides coming up. Our next one, episode three in the series, is going to be focused on EPA itself and talking about some of the mechanisms of potential cardiovascular benefit that that molecule has and just continuing to build off this great groundwork that we've laid here with Dr. Mikos today. Take care, everyone. Beep. Beep.